Well, please grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, continuing our series in this book, looking to finish chapter 4 today, 1 Corinthians, and we'll be in verse 14 of chapter 4. With all the things going on in our service today, I should have written a short sermon should have being the key words <laughs> in, this, in that sentence. 1 Corinthians 4 is where we'll be. We are finishing a section in this book as chapter 4 comes to a close. It really is a break in the letter, not just a break in our chapter sections of our books, but this really does change the tone uh, for the letter concluding this section. Once we get in the, into uh, chapter 5, suspense, Specific. I don't know why that word was having a hard time coming out of my mouth. Specific sin issues will start to be addressed in this book, um, beginning with chapter 5. But today, as we finish chapter 4, we are looking at Paul's final plea to the critics of his ministry to repent of their pragmatic judgments against him, their worldly strategies and judgments against his ministry. That's the, uh, this is the final portion of that as we look at verses 14 to 21. But before we get into reading the text, why don't I open again with a word of prayer. Father, we are indeed thankful for this day and we are thankful for your word. We thank you so much for the ways you have shown kindness toward us and you've cared for us all through this day already. And we ask that you would bless our study of your word. We thank you for it, that you have given us the revelation of yourself. And Lord, I ask that today as we look at this passage before us, that uh, we would all grow in our knowledge of you and that we would be more like Christ because of the time we spend together. And Lord, I ask that though I am a sinner, both by nature and by choice, that you would not allow me to get in the way of your text this morning, but that your word would be clear to your people. And we ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 4, let's start at verse 14 together, looking at verses 14 and 15. Paul writes, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel." Paul's uh, purpose so far in this chapter has been to rebuke the uh, Corinthians. We looked last week at a lengthy section of sarcasm. Yes, sometimes sarcasm can be appropriate. Sometimes. <laughs> uh, the sarcasm that you might have in mind in your own life might not be appropriate, but uh, Paul employed holy sarcasm, inspired sarcasm in his letter to the Corinthians. He said they were like kings, and he and the other apostles were the scum of the earth. And I don't think I went into detail last week about that phrase, scum of the earth. It's an interesting phrase. It basically means the leftover scraps that you throw away. Uh, just the other day, I was in the parking lot, um, or in a parking lot here in town, and I had a cup that had some water in it that had been sitting there for probably more than a week. I don't clean my car as regularly as I should, and uh, I wasn't going to drink that anymore, and so I dumped it out in the parking lot. That's what the scum of the earth is, the leftovers that you throw away. And 
Paul here in this letter was saying, you Corinthians, with your own pragmatic judgments, have become kings without us, and here we are left as the scum of the earth. He wasn't stating it as a fact. He was stating it as loving sarcasm, showing them, revealing to them the error of their ways. He's giving them loving admonition as he considered them his children. Look at verse 14 again with me. He says, I'm not writing these things to shame you. There is a point later in the letter where he says, I am writing this to your shame. But right now he's saying, I'm not saying these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my, notice the possessive there, my beloved children. He considered them to be his children. And the admonition aspect contains the idea of correction. It contains the idea of chiding, appealing, and encouraging as a father does with his own children to rebuke, correct, appeal, encourage. And it's what a father does as one who has great concern for his children. A loving father is involved. A loving father speaks up when something is wrong. A loving father cares enough to go through the difficult process of correcting his child. And Paul is saying, I'm admonishing you as a loving father. You are my children. And he makes a contrast right off the bat in verse 15 between fathers and tutors. Between fathers and tutors. He says, even if you were to have countless tutors, you would not have many fathers. I am your father. A tutor was one at that time who usually was a slave in a household who was appointed to be a nanny over the children. If you can think of our modern vernacular of nanny, that's basically what a tutor was at that time. The tutor would watch over the children by day, make sure they didn't, you know, jump into a a fire or something crazy like that, and then in the meantime, teach them some basic principles of life. Uh, Walk them through the ABCs and the one, two, threes, that sort of thing. That's what a nanny did, a slave who watched over the children and taught basic principles. But when we consider a father, that's been the same throughout the centuries. A father is one who has a measure of authority over a child's life, who has ownership over that child. My children are my children. I have a specific stewardship over them. God has put me over them as their authority. And a father, in contrast to a mere tutor or to a nanny, A father has the desire and the ability to discipline in love in a deep way. Uh, The parents of a child have that desire and that ability in profound ways that no one else on the face of the earth has. And that's what Paul is saying to these Corinthians, though you could have many people in your life to watch over you and teach you basic principles, you don't have many parents, but I'm your parent, I'm your father. The phrasing that he uses here at the end of verse 15 where he says, I became your father, it's begetting language. I begat you in the gospel. Just as you read through the genealogies in Scripture of so-and-so begat so-and-so, Paul is saying, I begat you. I became your father. Beyond just a mere job like a nanny might have, he cared for them deeply. And it was through the gospel that he became their father. It's a very important little prepositional phrase there in verse 15, through the gospel. It was by no other means that they had this close relationship, but this relationship was formed, it was initiated through the gospel message itself, the word of the cross. 
And the Corinthians weren't the only ones Paul had this relationship with. Paul said the same thing to Timothy. You are my son. He called Timothy his son. The same with Titus. These two young pastors, the apostle said, you are my sons in Christ. Onesimus, remember the runaway slave Onesimus? In the letter to Philemon, Paul says, he is my child, my son. And the Thessalonians too, he spoke to them saying, I was like your father when I was with you. And so he had special relationships with many different Christians and with many different churches because he was a missionary. He was an apostle. And when he would go from town to town, he would usually first go to the synagogue and he would proclaim the gospel to the Jews. And what was often the case was the Jews would get really upset and he would leave the synagogue. And then he would go out into the marketplace and he would share the gospel there, proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And there were many people through all of his journeys, many people who first heard of the gospel and first came to know the Lord through the Apostle Paul's ministry. And the way Paul viewed that, as evidenced here and in other places in the New Testament, was that he was parenting them spiritually. He became their spiritual parent through the gospel. And you might consider in your life who your spiritual parents are. And they're not always older than you. They're not always old, older than you enough to be your physical parent, but they have that influence on you as a parent in the faith. Someone who was an initial mentor in your life, someone who perhaps led you to the Lord, who was there when you prayed for salvation for the very first time, someone who first taught you what the Bible was all about, those parents in Christ. That's one of the most special relationships for a Christian, the spiritual parent, those that we consider fathers and mothers in the Lord. Very important, very special, and different from all other relationships. Because not every brother or sister you have in Christ is someone who has influenced you in that way. In fact, there are very, very few. And those are precious relationships to have. When I first became a believer, it was largely because of the ministry of a man in our hometown, a man named Ron Job, who owned his own uh, pesticide business, just recently sold it actually. Uh, but he served as an elder in the church, and he was at that time teaching the youth group. And I was going week after week, not knowing the gospel yet, but full of questions. If you know me, you might know the types of things I, I could ask. Uh, I was asking all sorts of questions about the Bible and about theology and about truth and how the world worked. And Ron and others, but, but Ron especially, was always there for me. He was available for me. He opened his home. He and his wife became like parents to me in the gospel. Ron was the one who told me about my mother's death the day that she died. And he was the one who was there for me to console me and to pray with me and to see me through that whole ordeal. Very, very important relationship to me and an irreplaceable relationship. It's important that we have those in our lives. Who's yours? Who's your spiritual father or your spiritual mother? Isn't that so special? And let me ask you this too. Have you sought to be one? Have you sought to be a parent in the Lord, a father or a mother? This is the Christian duty, discipleship. 
Not just learning ourselves, but in turn teaching another, coming alongside another, making yourself available to another, praying for someone else, counseling someone else, consoling someone else, being available to other people as a parent would. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus that it is better to give than to receive. There have been people that God has placed in your life who have changed you, affected you in dramatic ways. And it's so powerful in the local church when those relationships continue. And when those who were infants in Christ grow up and they become parents themselves, it's a beautiful thing to come alongside someone and to live in a way worthy of imitation, to live in a way that leads. And that's where Paul goes with these verses here. In verse 16, because he is their father in the Lord, he says, therefore, verse 16, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. He was calling them to mimic his way of life. And later in the letter, he repeats the phrase. This is chapter 11, verse 1. Paul says the same thing. He says, be imitators of me, and yet he adds, just as I also am of Christ. Paul was imitating Christ. He was living a life reflecting Christ, and then he calls the Corinthians to imitate him as he does so. He gives the same encouragement to the Philippians and the Thessalonians in Scripture, to those churches. He calls them to imitate his way of life. And this is an ethical appeal, calling for life change, calling for someone to adapt, to adjust their lifestyle to match his and the ways that he follows Christ. And in the Corinthians' case especially, not so much with the Philippians and the Thessalonians because they were doing well. Paul told them they were doing well. Corinthians weren't doing well. And so in the Corinthians' case, that message of imitate me as I imitate Christ really contained the idea of repentance, that they drastically needed to change. And we'll see this in the coming weeks as we go through their various issues in their church, the various sin issues that they were dealing with. But when Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, we have to consider what he had in mind. I would think, since he didn't follow Christ during his earthly ministry as one of the twelve disciples for those three years with Peter and James and John and the rest, I have to think that Paul was considering the whole of Christ's teaching. The Sermon on the Mount, the Upper Room Discourse, all of these things that Jesus taught while he was on earth, these teachings that were certainly making the rounds as people were becoming Christians and inspired writers were authoring the accounts of Jesus' teaching. Jesus was teaching us how to live in those messages. Jesus was imploring us to adapt our lives in a certain way, to glorify God, to honor God with our thinking and with our actions. And so Paul tells the Corinthians, I am imitating Christ, meaning I am living the Christ life. I am seeking His ways in all of my ways. Now you too imitate me as I imitate Christ. And Timothy was sent, we just read in verse 17, Timothy was sent for that reason, to remind the church in Corinth of Paul's ways to imitate. Not to remind them simply of Paul's existence, that you have a father and he cares for you. It's not just that. Timothy was sent there with the message of Paul's ways 
Remember how he lived this way among us? Remember how he did this among us and said that and showed us to do this? Imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. That was Timothy's message to the Corinthians. Imitation. Imitate me. That's a difficult phrase to embrace, isn't it? Imitate me. It's hard enough for us to understand how Paul could say it. It's even harder to think about you using it yourself. Telling someone else, imitate me. That's a very weighty phrase. But Christian ministry is a challenge, and Christian living is a challenge. And we are called as believers, as disciples of Christ, to be Christ-like, aren't we? We are called to imitate Christ. We are called to follow Christ in all of His teachings. We are called to be an example. Consider Titus chapter 2. We won't turn there, but Titus chapter 2, this pastor is told by Paul, encourage the men to teach the men and the women to teach the women, and the list of things that he gives for what they are to teach. It's all about living a holy life. It's all about living in a way that honors Christ. Christian living is a challenge. And the ministry we all have as Christians is to live our lives in such a way that it honors God. To walk in a manner worthy of our calling so as to please Him in all that we do. That is our calling. And let me tell you, there are people around you desperate for spiritual parents. There are people around you who are desperate for wise, loving, sacrificial, available people in the church who need that mentorship, who need that love and concern and care. You can do that. You can. You can grow and learn, and you can be that for someone else. Isn't that encouraging? God can use you in that way to dramatically, drastically affect someone else's life to become a father or a mother in the Lord. And you might say, well, that's inconvenient. (laughs) That whole being available thing, I'm busy. I'm real busy. Well, aren't we all? We are all very, very busy. And we all have a long list of things that we could always be doing. But parenthood isn't about convenience, is it? Those of you who have had children, parenthood goes beyond convenience. It goes beyond interacting in the ideal places. Being a spiritual father or mother in the Lord would be very easy if it was just a meet and greet on Sunday mornings. It would be very simple if it was just gathering together here and saying, how's it it going? Pat on the back, can I pray with you for a moment? And off you go. It'd be very easy if it was committing to that 90 seconds a week. But it's more than that. Becoming a father in the Lord or a mother in the Lord is truly living sacrificially for the benefit of another. Making yourself available, opening your home, and seeking to grow yourself so that you can have answers to those questions. Paul did it for the Corinthians, and he called them to imitate him as he imitated Christ. Consider how the Corinthians saw Paul's way of life for 18 months. You remember that? He was with them for a year and a half, 18 months. They knew a lot about Paul. They knew what Paul was like when he was tired and hungry. They knew what Paul was like when he had a bad day. They knew what Paul was like on good days. They knew a whole bunch about Paul. 
And Paul was living in such a way, reflecting the teachings of Christ, that he could still say after 18 months, you know what I was like, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's the calling of the Christian. As I was a new Christian and learning from the man I mentioned, Ron, I was learning so much about how Christians think and speak and talk and act in this situation and that situation, to go into their home and for the first time in my life see how a Christian husband talks to a Christian wife and vice versa. It was amazing. I'd never seen it. I didn't know. And I was learning just by being there. And he was a businessman, owning his own business to to hear him sit in his office, to hear him talk to his employees. Oh, that's, that's how a Christian handles that situation. I'd never seen it. And when you open your lives like that, seeking to follow Christ in all that you do, you're teaching so much as a parent, as a spiritual parent. Paul was an upright and faithful man who led the Corinthians by his example. We should make it our aim to be upright and faithful parents, not just to our physical children, but to our spiritual children as well. And perhaps you can think of someone right now in this church or in this area, perhaps you can think of someone that you could come alongside and be a spiritual father or spiritual mother to. And that person probably needs it. Ask the Lord to put that on your heart and open yourself up to that person. And Paul was an intentional father in all that he did. He wasn't a neglectful father. He was a very intentional father as he considered the Corinthians his children. He was also a protective father. Look with me at verses 18 to 21. Look at how Paul speaks to them as their father and what his intentions were. 1 Corinthians 4.18, Now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This passage almost reads like, just wait until your father gets home. You've, you've perhaps heard that uh, in your life. Uh, just wait until dad gets home. Well, Paul intends to go home to Corinth, and he has intentions when he goes. The first thing we notice here in this section is that he desired to go to them soon. He desired to go to them quickly. Uh, it says in verse 19, I will come to you soon. But look at the phrase that follows it. It's a Christian phrase. It's a phrase that we should use in all of our planning. If the Lord wills or as the Lord wills. Paul's plans were always in submission to the sovereignty of God, as all of ours should be. For we plan our ways, but the Lord is the one who establishes each and every moment. And just so you know, in the context of history here, it appears as though it took two to four years for Paul to actually get to Corinth. When he said, I will come to you soon, I don't think he had in mind two to four years. I think the Lord uh, did correct his plans there. And he had his intentions. He, he definitely had intentions to go there soon. Turn with me to the back of the book, chapter 16, the very last chapter, where Paul is landing the plane of the letter here, he again repeats to them his desires and his intentions. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, starting at verse 3. 1 Corinthians 16, 3. When I arrive, Paul says, 
Whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem, and if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. There he extrapolated the plans a little bit, he elaborated the plans, and still concludes with, if the Lord permits. Paul, as a caring father, had his intentions with them, wanted to care for them, wanted to spend quality time with them, not just a passing moment, but several moments with them, if the Lord permitted. He had his intentions, but he cared more about the Lord's will for his life. Another easy, applicable point for us this morning. He had his intentions, but he cared more about the Lord's will. We, of course, have our personal desires, but they should always be in submission to the sovereign Lord of the universe, shouldn't they? Whatever they are, whatever we intend to do, we say, if the Lord permits. Back in chapter 4, he desired to go to them soon, and he also desired to deal with the puffed-up people directly. It says in verse 18 that some have become arrogant. This is a word that he used earlier in the chapter. Remember, it means puffed up, the idea of a balloon filling with air. Some people's heads have just increased with all this hot air. They're very puffed up. And it appears as though in verse 18 that the foundation or the basis for their arrogance was Paul's absence. They were looking around and saying, well, Paul's not here, and that inspired them to be arrogant. Therefore, Paul's presence would start to deflate that balloon right off the bat. As Paul returned, uh, the people who were walking around saying, Paul's not here. I don't see Paul anywhere. I don't think he's coming back. As he returned, their mouths would certainly start to close and their heads would hopefully start to shrink as they were puffed up with all of their own thoughts and all of their own uh, pragmatic strategies. And it says here that as he returned, He wouldn't just seek out what they were saying, but he was going to seek out their power. It says in verse 19 again, I shall find out not their words, but their power. Not the words of the arrogant, but their power. This is certainly not the first time Paul has used that word power in this book. Turn with me to chapter 1, just a page or two over. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look with me at verse 18. How does Paul understand the power of God? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it'll help us start to answer that question. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it, the word of the cross, is the power of God. The word of the cross is power. Look down at verse 23, same chapter, chapter 1. Verse 23, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the call, both Jews and uh, Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The word of Christ, the word of the cross, Christ crucified is the power of God. Paul's argument was that the gospel isn't just words, the gospel is power. Therefore, when he comes back to Corinth, he was going to find out not what they were saying, 
but if their words actually contained within them any power. Did the Corinthian critics have the power of God? Some might say that signs and wonders were the power of God, that Paul was talking about the signs and wonders he would perform, tongues and healings and miracles. But Scripture says that the word of the cross is power. Paul didn't say, I will come there and I'll put my performance up against their performance. I'll perform my signs and show my display of apostolic power and see what they're left with. That's not Paul's argument. Paul's argument is, I have the word of the cross. It humbles us. It makes foolish the wise. It makes weak the strong. But it also makes wise the foolish, and it makes strong the weak. I have the word of the cross full of power. What do they have? The message of the cross is the powerful message because it truly changes us, doesn't it? For those of us who have come to know the Lord through the word of the cross, we've been changed. We've been set free from sin. We've been given the power of God. John MacArthur says, Faith that does not result in right living may have many words to support it, but it will have no power. A person's true spiritual character is not determined by the impressiveness of, of his words, but by the power of his life. The word of the cross is power. I want to show you a few verses as we consider the power of the gospel. The gospel message, the word of Christ crucified, has the power to save our souls. Romans 1.16, I hope you know this one by heart. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And why are we not ashamed? Why are Christians not ashamed? Because it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The word of the cross, the message of Christ crucified, has power to save, power to save our souls. But not just that. The word of the cross also has the power to change us. Colossians, Colossians chapter 1 Verses 10 and 11, Paul writes to them saying, he's writing this, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Well, how can we do that? By being strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. We are strengthened by God, through the Word, through the Word of the cross, through the message of Christ crucified, we are strengthened, not just saved, but changed by His strong power. And not only are we saved, not only are we changed, but we're also preserved by God. First Peter, First Peter chapter 1, verse 5, it says that we as Christians are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only are our souls saved, not only are we changed and, and conformed to the image of Christ progressively through this life, but we are also protected, we are preserved by the power of God through faith in what Jesus has done. We are preserved forever as believers in Jesus because of God's power in the gospel. Isn't that great news? Isn't it great news that it's not just power to save, but power to keep? 
The word of the cross isn't just power to save, and now it's up to you to hold on to it. The word of the cross is, you may be saved, your soul may be saved today, and he will hold on to you forever and ever. The power to save us, the power to change us, and the power to preserve us. Remember, if this was, you know, in the context of Paul and the Corinthians, if it was merely words versus words, put Paul up on a podium and put one of the Corinthians up on a podium like our presidential debates, uh, heaven forbid, but put them, put them up there and just have words versus words, Paul admittedly would lose. Do you remember this in 1 Corinthians 2? Look at chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2, starting at verse 3, Paul wasn't going to win that battle. He admitted to them, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but they were in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. If it was all about just speaking eloquently, speaking persuasively, giving a good sales pitch, Paul wouldn't have won anybody over. He says, I didn't do that. But what did he do? He got up there as an instrument in God's hand, and God, through him, imparted power to the souls of the Corinthians. Through the preaching of the word of the cross and the believing of the word of the cross, God's power was on full display. Paul says there, again, chapter 2 and verse 4, that his words, though they weren't in persuasive words, it was demonstrating the Spirit and it was demonstrating power because God was at work. It wasn't Paul at work at the end of the day. It was God at work. And through this preacher, God was powerfully redeeming souls. It was more than just words. So we conclude from this topic that worldly strategies and pragmatic chatter that go on in churches, that was going on in the Corinthian church as they were criticizing Paul through their worldly pragmatic chatter, all of that is just powerless hot air, isn't it? That's all it is. It's just water vapor coming out of someone's mouth. That's all that is, and we're all scared of that today, aren't we? Water vapor. That's all it is, but it's powerless. It's powerless. And the message of the cross that gets proclaimed is the power of God. It's not merely words versus words. It's a demonstration of the Spirit and of power versus a demonstration of mere men kicking back against God's design. The gospel, the word of the cross, is power. In verse 20, this wonderful reminder in chapter 4, verse 20, the kingdom of God exists in that power. It says, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words, that powerless hot air. That's not what the kingdom of God consists of or consists in. But the kingdom of God consists in words, or in power, rather, in power, not in mere words. God's kingdom exists because of God's power found in the gospel message. You might be wondering what Paul has in mind when he references kingdom here. It's not a word that we use a lot in our conversation. We don't talk about being members of the kingdom of God. And that's because there is an already not yet aspect to all of this. 
we are in a kingdom. We are under the rulership of a king, King Jesus. And yet we recognize there is a coming kingdom, isn't there? There is coming a time when Jesus will establish, He will physically reign on the earth, and He will establish a kingdom on the earth in a much more real sense than what we're experiencing now in this fallen place. We are awaiting the king. Though the kingdom has begun, it hasn't been fully realized quite yet. Yet Paul is saying, in this kingdom, the substance is powerful. There's power. The substance is power, not mere words. So you as a Christian, you may not look very powerful. You may not look very mighty or very strong. You might not think of yourself as powerful. But you stand and you exist and you live and move and have your being by the power of the Almighty. As a Christian, you have received the power of God. You have been brought into a kingdom that Hebrews says cannot be shaken. And that's because the almighty, powerful God has saved you. And He's changing you. And He's holding on to you. Isn't that our hope? Isn't that what soothes our soul in such crazy days? Well, He ends this section with a final encouragement for them to repent. In verse 21, Paul asks them two questions. The first question, of course, is just what do you desire? And then he gives them two options in his next question. Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Paul's giving his children two options. Do you want a disciplinary conflict or do you want a warm, relaxed embrace? Which one is it? Which do you prefer? A conflict or a relaxed embrace? It was their choice. And this father, Paul, he was ready for either as a good spiritual father, caring for his children. He was ready for either scenario. And as parents, we know the difference between these two situations, don't we? We know the difference between these two scenarios. Coming at your child with a rod (laughs) and coming at your child with love and a spirit of gentleness. (laughs) And much of that is determined by the child's attitude, isn't it? If the child is penitent, (laughs) if the child is truly sorry, if the child is truly broken, if the child wants to change, there's an immediate softness that should enter the heart of every Christian parent. But for that child, usually middle childs, (laughs) for that child who just wants to continue fighting and kicking back, you might need to bring the rod, as Proverbs talks about. But our rod is uh, not a literal rod of beating. Paul doesn't have in mind he's going to actually come and thump the Corinthians on the head or on the backside for what they've done. But we understand that the Word of God is the ruler that we use. The, uh, The Word of God is our tool as we seek to correct and instruct others. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, very common verses talking about what the Bible is. We understand that all Scripture is inspired of God, and it's profitable for these things. This is the rod that Paul was talking about for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. To what end? What's the end of all of this? So that the man of God may be adequate or complete equipped for every good work. 
Love calls for correction. Just as God, the perfect Father, loves us by correcting us, whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. The Father disciplines His children. So we too, as parents, should correct our children, whether that is our physical descendants or we're talking about our spiritual children. Love calls for correction from the Word of God. But as we see here in this verse, when we are humble, we don't have to constantly fear a disciplinary conflict. When we're humble and tender toward our sin, when we're tender toward the instruction of others, when we're open to hearing counsel and correction and rebuke from the Word of God, we don't have to fear receiving the rod of discipline like Paul is presenting here as one of the options. But if the Corinthians read this from Paul and and say, he's right, we have been misled by our own hearts. We've been deceived. We've been going off and considering Paul's ministry to be weak. We've been going off and considering the mighty things that God has done to be foolish. We are wrong. If that's the case, then the Corinthians can look forward to Paul's return, and Paul can look forward to his return to Corinth. And if we live our lives in such a way where we are tender toward those things and open for correction and soft toward those who God has placed in our lives as teachers, then we can relax, they can relax, and we can all grow in Christ together. That was certainly Paul's goal, was growth for all together in love. And as we get into the next chapter, chapter 5, and begin all the now concerning passages, that's a very familiar phrase in the book of Corinthians, now concerning this, now concerning that, this sin, that sin, over and over. He's going to give instruction on all of these topics. Let's go ahead right now and adopt an attitude of humility. Let's go ahead, before we get into these things that might step on our toes a little bit, we're going to be talking about lawsuits. We're going to be talking about marriage and divorce. We're going to be talking about communion and how that is to be considered. We're going to be talking about tongues and charismatic gifts, and whether they're still for today, we'll be talking about all sorts of things. And as we get into these topics, let's right now decide to have a tender attitude toward the Word of God, to not view it as a rod that will beat us over, because it can do that. Scripture is scripture's described as a sword, you know. <laughs> it can cut us. But if we are soft and tender toward what God is teaching us through His Word, then we can relax. We can relax with this, and we can learn and grow together. Let's pray. Father, again, thank You for the ways that You have worked in our lives, how You've brought us to this place, that You've saved us, You've changed us, and You really are preserving us to the final day. We thank You for those influencers You've placed in our lives, those who lead lives worthy of imitation, We ask that we would continue to respect them and honor them and and follow them as they follow you. And Lord, we ask that you would give us an eye for those who are in need of those spiritual parents, that we might be those to them, that we would consider those around us who are in need of godly mentors, who are in need of those 
to just be available and to come alongside and to truly invest in them. As Paul was with the Corinthians, give us those types of relationships that we would all grow together in humble love, knowing that this is all about your power, not our words, but your power. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.